0: Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're going to take a look at Utah water, water in the West, on uh, Axis, Utah today. I'll be talking with uh, Utah or uh, Weber State University uh, English professor Hal Krimmel. He's edited a new book out from University of Utah Press. It's called Desert Water: The Future of Utah's Water Resources. And here's how geographer Eric Ewart uh, presents problems. In the first chapter of the book, he says the state of Utah is speeding toward a water and population train wreck. He's talking about population growth and water decline. Other chapters in the book look at uh, the climate change and the future of the Great Salt Lake. Also, uh, laws uh, regulating access of the public to streams and rivers. Another chapter takes a look at uh, declines in the water level in Lake Powell and possible return of Glen Canyon. Uh, Hal Krimmel himself has written a chapter on impacts on water from oil and gas development in eastern Utah. And other chapters take a look at uh, transporting water, possible pipelines, which would affect people in southern and uh, western Utah. Very interesting book. We're going to talk about water issues. You're welcome to join this conversation. We'd love to hear what's going on in your part of the world, and you can join us at 1-800-826-1495. You can join us on Twitter, at Utah Public Radio, and uh, by email to upraxis at gmail.com. Uh, Hal Krimmel, welcome to the program.
1: Morning, Tom. Thanks for having me.
0: You're a Brady, Later. Brady, distinguished professor of English at Weber State University, author of Dinosaur, Four Seasons on the Green and Yampa Rivers. That makes my ears perk up. I'm I'm a native of Vernal, uh, and in fact, your chapter in the book uh, as well. We'll get into that. Uh, I wonder if you have the book with you. I do. Yes. Um, I'd love to have you read the the first chapter um, of the, uh, the first uh, paragraph, the first chapter. This is uh, Eric Ewart's uh, chapter titled "The Coming Challenge." And this uh, gets into, I think, perceptions that a lot of us have about water.
1: Good. Okay. Here we go. Anyone sitting streamside and resting comfortably in lush grass deep in the shade of a broad-leafed tree may find it hard to worry much about water supplies in Utah. All along the Wasatch Front, we can find such green sanctuaries and then look upward at the snow-capped mountains and forget altogether that we live in a desert. The feeling of abundance is contrived, though, and the view is a mirage. The Kentucky bluegrass and sycamore trees were imported from far wetter parts of the country. They only grow here because of an elaborate system of reservoirs, pipes, and sprinklers. The gleaming white snowpack on the peaks will decline rapidly, mainly due to climate change. And the gurgling streams rarely reach their destination, Great Salt Lake. Instead, water once bound for the lake grows grass and trees and crops and people. Over the course of the creek, we can easily hear the constant hum of highway traffic, the thwack-thwack of a house builder's nail gun, and the screech of children at recess outside an overstuffed elementary school. It's far easier to tune out the clatter of humanity and revel in the verdant stream banks, but we no longer have that luxury in our desert oasis.
0: Yeah, I like the way he opens uh, with with that picture. We're we're in a desert essentially, but I think we can fool ourselves. We look up at the snow on the mountains, and we've got the Kentucky bluegrass, and it's uh, easy to, to to push this problem out of our minds.
1: Absolutely, and um, and uh, for for years, for decades, we we haven't really had to think about. Uh, we haven't really had to think as, as intensely about water as we are going to have to in the in the coming decades,
0: um, and we certainly need to think about it today. So Eric Hewitt, uh, he as I said at the beginning of the program, this is a sentence, the state of Utah is speeding toward a water and population train wreck. He says, actually, it's more of a head-on collision. I wonder if you could expand on that, as Mr. Ewart does. Uh, population growth and declining water resources. Something we'll have to give.
1: Yeah, so uh, the, the state um, has estimated that the the population projections by, by 2060, or for the population to double to six million. And um, water supplies are, are finite, even though the, the population could conceivably grow forever, uh, we're not going to have any more water. Um, and so uh, with the climate change, which even though you know, many people still seem to be debating whether or not climate change is a reality, the fact is is that all of the government uh, organizations, everything from the cities to the counties, state, the national level, are, are preparing that climate change is, in fact, a reality. And, and how that will affect our water supplies is that in Utah, um, our, our system is set up to capture snowmelt. And climate change is, is, means that increasingly a larger percentage of our precipitation in the state, in the northern part of the state, Especially, will be falling as rain, and our and our and our storage systems aren't set up to capture that. So that's a, so that's a, a significant problem for us.
0: And and there are some other associated problems: increased sedimentation in our reservoirs.
1: Yes, um, that's particularly true. Um, all all reservoirs, to some degree, have a have a sedimentation problem, but that's particularly an issue in places where you, you have a. a, a a so-called desert river where there's a carries a high sediment load such as the Colorado and the and the green rivers and so um, you know if anyone who's been to Lake Powell recently will can can, can see these huge uh, sand banks that have emerged as the lake has dropped and so um, you know when the when the river is flowing it's able to suspend that sediment but when the river comes to a stop in the in the lake the sediment drops out that's why the the water in the lake is so clear and eventually uh, the, the the reservoir any reservoir will will eventually fill up and become unusable. Um, that's a little ways down the road, but um, by by sort of human lifetime standards but uh, it's not inconceivable that within a hundred years uh, lake powell will be will, will be full of sediment and, and and
0: unusable and as you as you made reference to uh, snowpack we, we have depended on plentiful snowpack. And uh, an even flow of that water uh, down from the mountain during the spring and early summer—that's changing.
1: That is changing, and um, it's a—it's a, it's a uh, sort of an interlocking cycle. I mean, as we have as we have more development, um, which which disturbs existing vegetation, um, more more people, uh, drier, hotter weather, we put more dust into the atmosphere, and and uh, so anyone who, you know, along the Wasatch Front is familiar with the, the warm before the storm, the big south winds that, that blow before we, we get our, our, our cold fronts and snowstorms and so forth, uh, puts a lot of dust into the atmosphere. And that dust settles on the snowpack. And there's been a lot of interesting research done by scientists at the University of Utah documenting how this increased amount of dust that settles on our snowpack accelerates the rate of the of the of the melting in in springtime. So uh, between that and the warmer temperatures in springtime that are that are that are projected, for not just now but in the very near future, instead of as you mentioned, Tom, that sort of steady um, measured runoff will be having the runoff happen much more quickly, and that presents challenges for for capturing that water.
0: So uh, that was a this pretty stark statement I read from, uh, from Eric Ewart. We're uh, heading for a train wreck. What, uh, talking to experts and, uh, and editing this book, what, uh, how dire are the predictions? How, how soon is crisis coming?
1: Well, it depends on how you define the crisis. And uh, one of the things we've been trying to do in the book is suggest that we don't so much have a crisis of, of water per se, but a crisis of how we manage that water. Um, and, uh, to some degree, there's a, I, I would say, of course, it depends on who you talk to, but there's a bit of fear mongering in that if we, if we tell people that we're, we are running out of water, uh, that panics people and, um, makes us perhaps more likely to be willing to support expensive infrastructure projects. There's a recent report, um, released, um, just in the last month or so by the four, largest water conservancy districts in the state, and they're suggesting that the state will need more than $32 billion in infrastructure projects through 2060. That's a tremendous amount of money. And many of us feel that uh, with better conservation measures, uh, we could alleviate some of the the, the pressures on our our water resources. Uh, Currently, about only 2% the entire available fresh water in the state is used inside people's homes. The vast majority of that is used uh, not, even to, not even to sprinkle or irrigate lawns and gardens, but simply for agriculture. About 85% of the total water in the state is used by agriculture. So I think with um, uh, a couple of the chapters in the book discuss this in great detail, but with better, better pricing models for water, um, a number of other types of conservation measures, which which we could talk about perhaps as the show goes on, um, many of us feel that it, it might not be necessary to spend so much money on infrastructure projects.
0: Let's take a break. When we come back, uh, I want to get into a couple of those chapters, talk about conservation and pricing. I think pricing is a, is a key element uh, here. And uh, when we come back, I want to get into this chapter by Zach Frankel with, is it Utah Rivers? I always forget U- what it is. Utah Rivers like. Utah yeah, River's exactly. Council, yes, and uh, his his book, uh, <laughs> uh, or his his chapter is titled "Chicken Little's New Career." How Utah's Water Development Industry Sows False Fears and Misinformation. You can tell where Mr. Frankel is coming from. Um, yeah. we'll, uh, we'll get into that, but, but he has a provocative um, – he gets into pricing, right? And he, he, yeah. uh, he's totally against the proposed Lake Powell pipeline. That's uh, the bur- uh-huh. burden of the, the chapter. But he gets into pricing and, and how that might change and how conservation could perhaps uh, solve the problem instead of a pipeline. We'll talk about that following the break.
2: Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members. And Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread, located at 300 South and 300 West in Logan. Featuring savory European-style breakfast treats, such as quiches and a revolving menu of lunch sandwiches, such as artichoke basil and fresh mozzarella. Information at crumbbrothers.com.
3: Did you ever wonder where we come from and where we're going?
0: I think we already are a different species. We've supersized our diets. We have eradicated certain diseases. We're putting more data into our brains in one day than we used to put in a lifetime.
3: I'm Guy Raz, the source of everything, our origins, and our future. Next time on the TED Radio Hour from NPR.
2: Monday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio.
0: Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking about water. The book is Desert Water, the Future of Utah's Water Resources. The editor is Hal Krimmel. He is Brady Presidential Distinguished Professor of English at Weber State University. And uh, this is out from the University of Utah Press. Uh, so several of the chapters uh, we've talked about and are going to talk about. Uh, one very interesting chapter by George Handley, Restoration of All Things, the Case of the Provo River Delta. He talks about uh, LDS theology and uh, how members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints view earth stewardship. He's arguing for a different view than he perceives many members of the church uh, See and, and 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 applies that directly to uh, the Provo River, uh, climate change in the future of the Great Salt Lake. It's another uh, chapter. Hal Krimmel himself has a chapter called "Land of Twenty Thousand Wells: Impacts on Water from Oil and Gas Development in Eastern Utah." What we want to move to next is uh, Zach Frankel's uh, chapter called "Chicken Little's New Career: How Utah's Water Development Industry Sows False Fears and Misinformation." What Mr. Frankel is uh, is opposing is a proposed $1 billion uh, Lake Powell Pipeline that uh, proponents say is needed to uh, meet the future water needs of residents in Washington and uh, Kane counties. Uh, Frankel is executive director of Utah Rivers Council, and he is opposed to this. Uh, let me open the phone lines here. The number is 1-800-826-1495. 1-800-826-1495. You can join us by email, upraccess at gmail.com, Upraccess at gmail.com, or you can join us on Twitter. We're at Utah. Public radio, love to get your uh, opinion on uh, some of these very important water issues, especially what's happening where you are. And we're talking with Hal Krimmel in the uh, in the program today. By the way, uh, Chicken Little, uh, there's a picture in the in the book of of a of of a guy dressed up in a Chicken Little costume. I think this is at the Utah Legislature, Uh, possibly Mr. Frankel. I'm not sure. Uh, I guess one of one of the uh, the message here is the sky is not falling. There are other ways to to handle the water needs in Washington and Kane counties.
1: That would be uh, that would be Zach's perspective. Um, absolutely, you know, Jack, Zach comes from a, a conservation biology background, and um, and he's done a, a tremendous job protecting the the rivers in in the state of Utah to ensure that there's enough water in them for. People who like to go fishing, inner tubing, um, whitewater, canoeing, kayaking, rafting—all those types of things that we've that we've come to enjoy. And um, now, every time you take a, a, a gallon of water out of a river, that's that's a gallon less that uh, is available for fish and wildlife, uh, for people to use, and so forth. And um, you know, interestingly. People, only people in the state of Utah can have a right, a legal right to water. So, Tom, you or I, if we owned property, we could own several water shares. But uh, a river or, or an entity like the Great Salt Lake does not actually have a legal right to water. And uh, that's one of the issues that we've, we've been talking about in the book is trying to, would it be possible to change some of the laws in the state to, to guarantee a water right for a stream or a lake that is. Very, very important to Utah's economy, uh, our quality of life, and so forth. Um, in terms of uh, Zach's position on the, on the, on the pipeline, I, I think it's worth, you know, looking at the economics of the pipeline, the cost. Um, you, you may remember uh, last year or the year before, there was a, a bill floated in the, in the legislature to try and add a sales tax to uh, a, a statewide that would pay for that would pay for this pipeline, and I think the the perspective that we're, we're trying to communicate in the book is that St. George has one of the highest rates of per capita water consumption in the country, um, because water is is artificially is, uh, is artificially cheap in St. George, in large part due to bundling um, water rates with property tax, so that people don't see the the the, the true cost of of water. And so, I think Zach feels that perhaps um, more aggressive and targeted conservation measures would provide all of the water that St. George needs without having to build an expensive pipeline that would would take water out of the out of the Colorado River.
0: So, and and he gives an example of the water in St. George. And I, I think this would be very similar over many areas of Utah. Seems cheap. That, that's the that's keyword. Seems cheap. And and seems. It, it, yes. For example, he points out that uh, it's 15 times less than the rates that citizens in Seattle pay.
1: That's correct. Yeah, and some of that is is um you know, historically the federal government has paid for a lot of uh water projects here in here in Utah and around the nation and uh, according to this uh financing and funding Utah's water report that um that just came out, the one I had mentioned earlier. Um, looks like the federal government is really going to cut back on the amount of um, funding that they'll be providing for for water projects, which is going to put the pressure on this on on the state to to fund any new large scale infrastructure projects. Um, and so uh, I think one of the the questions is is to what degree should the end user pay for the product that they're that you're using if, i I think one of the wonderful things about Utah is we're an extremely fiscally conservative state. You know, we we have a balanced budget. I think that's just a, you know, I've lived in several states where that has not been the case. And uh, I I think it's a a value that all Utahns share is being fiscally conservative. And I think when you look at the numbers for this pipeline project, that to me seems to go against that sort of fiscal conservatism that I think is is a a real core value of people in the state.
0: How would uh, how how would that fee structure be changed? Right now, you're saying it's it's bundled in with property taxes, mm-hmm. essentially a subsidy. Uh, exactly. How, what are the proposals to, to 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 strip that out, and what are the proposals to change that?
1: Well, I don't I don't believe anyone is actually talking about that right now, but I think it's uh, you know typically to to. Uh, it drives some sort of change. You have this process of uh, talking about new ideas, which t- tend to get criticized. People start talking about them a little bit more and thinking, you know, maybe that's not such a bad idea. And then and then eventually these new ideas can get put into place. And um, one of the key chapters in the book, the last chapter, perhaps we'll talk about that later, is uh, called a, a New Water Ethic. And it's this idea of really revisioning how we see water in the state of utah and part of that i believe should be taking a, a long hard look at the bundling of of water delivery with with property tax um so if you did unbundle it you would suddenly see that water costs a lot more than than we think it does just as if you know as zach has said before uh, you know imagine if your natural gas bill for heating your home if natural gas was bundled with your property tax probably many of us wouldn't be quite as concerned about, you know, insulating our house better, keeping doors and windows shut, that sort of thing during the heating season if we didn't if we weren't able to tell exactly how much that gas we were using was costing us.
0: And I can see the value in in you know as proponents would say properly valuing water and that would have a tendency to have us conserve it on the other side um you know i, I have some friends who uh, water rates as low as they are 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 still you know with their low budgets are not planting their garden because they you know they can't pay the water bill wouldn't it have a regressive effect
1: there's um so i think there's a a couple things that uh, at play there um of course, when again, when we think about the amount of water that two percent that's that's used inside people's homes, um, clearly, you know, for for low-income houses, we could we could set up a, a policy that would help to subsidize those users. But but uh, for for many of us, um, the water is is priced in a is, is is priced in a way that sort of makes it artificially cheap, so we use more. And perhaps if it were priced if it were priced higher, we actually might use less, which in turn might actually lower our net cost of, of the water. I, I tend to think of it when i 've been doing some talks around the state recently, and um, I, I tend to use the analogy of uh, uh, those of us who are over the age of forty can remember those giant cars that you know would get eight, six, eight miles a gallon when gasoline was cheap, and of course we 'd use much more gasoline. Today, with there's so many cars that get 30 or 40, 50 miles a gallon, um, the cost of fuel is higher, but we're using less of it, Uh, and this is, I think, due to a combination of consumer choice, but also government policies that have made it possible for us to purchase vehicles that uh, get better than six or eight miles a gallon. I think we could do the same thing with water.
0: so, Mr. Frankel uh, uh, talks about uh, how he thinks with conservation, with 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 that one method, uh, you could you could denecessitate a a lake Powell pipeline. So, I I would guess. Want to get your opinion on this? I would guess that if you look at the overall problem, we we probably can't conserve our way out of out of this coming train wreck that uh, the first chapter talks about. In other words, conservation necessary but probably not sufficient.
1: Think it, I think it depends who you talk to. Um, the, the state Department of Water Resources, um, and 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 also uh, the, the report here that I've that I've mentioned, um, called Prepare 60, figures that about 40 percent um, of of our, of our water needs will need to be met through um, uh, through um, new infrastructure projects, and, and 60% could be met through conservation. Um, you know, one of the interesting things I've learned from working on this project is is typically you'd think that there might be debates about um, when, once you have a certain amount of data, what do you do with the information? And what I have found with this project is there are a lot of competing, the data itself competes, so whether we whether those numbers are um accurate is hard to tell but i think if you one way i think to get a look at this is to see how much water other municipalities around the west are using and um so right now salt lake is salt lake city proper is using about 280 gallons of water per day um as of february 2014 the city of los angeles was li- using 123 gallons a day. Um, so uh, I, I think when we look at the amount of water that we that we use vis-a-vis other municipalities, we could do a tremendous amount with conservation before we have to invest in these expensive uh, infrastructure projects that I think are going to um, sort of maintain the status quo. Uh, I see it as sort of akin to... To, to building more freeways, you know, you, you build more freeways to help to decongest, but it just incents people to 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 get in their cars more. So that's a um, that's one. I think that's perhaps one way to to look at the the conservation pieces. To look at what other municipalities are doing, what other states and cities are doing, um, and it's also possible. Uh, not just possible. I think it's imperative that we rethink our, some of our water laws. And I've talked to multiple people recently, you know, we have this use it or lose it policy. So if if uh, I'm a farmer or a rancher and I have, uh, you know, eight water shares, but I only need four, if I don't use those extra four shares, I lose that water right. And so that does not incent people to save water. i, I that is analogous to, it's like a person saying, you know, we want you to save as much money as you possibly can, but any money you have in your bank account at the end of the year, we're going to take it from you.
0: Yeah, that's certainly, uh, uh, you know, I think we've all seen seen instances in in that vein. We're talking about water. Desert Water is the title of the book. The subtitle is The Future of Utah's Water Resources. This is edited by Weber State University English professor Hal Krimmel. And he's uh, put together uh, a wide range of uh, chapters, everything from climate change and uh, the Great Salt Lake to uh, there's a chapter on uh, public policy re- regarding. Uh the public's uh, access to streams and uh, rivers. Uh, His own chapter is called The Land of 20,000 Wells, Impacts on Water from Oil and Gas Development in Eastern Utah. I want to get to that as well. Daniel McCool has written A New Water Ethic. That's uh, his chapter, and we'll talk about that as well. Uh, You're welcome to join this uh, conversation if you would like at 1-800-826-1495. 1-800-826-1495. Uh, We just have about 20 minutes left in the conversation. Upraccess at gmail.com is our email, Upraxis at gmail.com. And you can join us on Twitter at Utah Public Radio. So Hal Krimmel, I'd like to bring this uh, down to uh, household level. Uh, I wonder what you've seen out there or read about in terms of successful programs for, you know, the regular folk. We're all going to need to go to xeriscaping, get rid of our Kentucky bluegrass. Uh, What what are some success stories out there?
1: Not necessarily. I I think it's important to remember, um, and one of the goals, again, of the book was to not make people feel guilty about using water. I mean, it's... uh, one of the things that makes living along the Wasatch Front special is that we we can have these wonderful trees and gardens and so forth. And um, so uh, one, uh, I mean, there are many, many things that people can do. You know, recently uh, the, the state law changed so people can have a rain barrel, meaning that you can capture. It used to be it was illegal for you or me or anyone else to capture water that ran off their roof. Uh, just down the, the gutter and out onto your grass, and uh, now you can capture that water. So you could put you can put rain barrels in. You can pump water out of that. Um, others uh, include more sophisticated sprinkler systems, um, ones that have uh, soil moisture sensors that uh, will not allow the sprinkler system to run. Let's say after a rainstorm, we've all had that experience when uh, you know it's pouring rain and you look over and your neighbor's sprinkler is going. Uh, there's that. There's that sort of thing that, that could be changed. Um, of course, uh, you know, just basic water conservation practices like drip irrigation uh, can make it can make a huge difference in, in, in people's water bill. Um, those are those are just a few, just a few things that uh, that each of us could do. Um, you know, about fifty, as I said, about fifteen percent of the water that is used in the state is considered municipal and industrial and about half of that in other words 75% of the total is um, is used for uh, residential residential use and of that nearly anywhere between 60 and 80% of that water is is water that's used uh, outdoors for lawns and gardens and so forth So in in the grand scheme of things, the water that we're using um, in our lawns and gardens is a small percentage of the overall water that's used in the state, but there's still a tremendous amount we could do in terms of um, uh, conservation. Uh, I I think the last thing I would add is that um, metering is, is key. So depending on where a person lives, every drop that Goes on to their property may be metered, but there are also many municipalities, Ogden being one of them, where um, the secondary water, in other words, the irrigation water, is not metered. So people have no idea how much they're using, and because they pay a flat rate for water, again, there's there's no incentive for them to say, "Gosh, you know, maybe I'm going to use a little bit less water this week," because it's uh, it's in effect it's like an all you can eat buffet. I paid my 10 dollars I might as well eat as much as I can. So, installing meters and I know that the Weaver uh, Basin Conservancy District has been b- beginning to install secondary uh, install metering on the secondary water system. That will go a really long way to uh, to saving to um, helping people
0: save water. We're talking with uh, Hal Krimmel, the the book is Desert Water. We're going to be talking about the U.N. Basin, Uh, talk about uh, also a new water ethic. And um, uh, Professor Krimmel has talked about uh, the need to change water law, which in some ways in Utah and the West is like uh, touching the third rail. We'll we'll, uh, talk about feasibility of that and potential for that. We do have a caller on the line, um, Mary in St. George. Mary, welcome to the program. Hello. Hello. Go ahead with your question or comment.
3: I really uh, enjoy listening to this station, and I enjoy everything about it, but with listening to this, I'm a recent retiree from California, been here a little over a year, and we get a, I think it's every two months, um, a utilities bill, and everything on it is itemized. The water, the electricity, the gas, the trash, the sewer... And my water here on a smaller piece of property, and it's an older house, it's not a newer house, so it's whatever the laws were with older communities, um, it's totally itemized out, and I'm paying more for water here than I was in Southern California, where it was pretty darn expensive.
0: Interesting. So, uh, uh, Professor Krimmel,
1: uh, Well, uh, it depends probably on the municipality that you that you moved from um uh and then um depends on the volume of water you used i mean sort of i guess without without looking at your water bill it's hard for me to it's hard for me to compare that with where you move from in california i, I can only tell you that the that the uh, per capita gallon per day of the average person in uh in st george is much greater than it is in san diego or, or los angeles
0: I don't
3: remember exactly the yeah. number of feet, whatever you call it, with water. Um, so I don't remember exactly what our consumption is here, but I'm, we moved to, get to Utah because the mentality of the people seemed to be so much more in line with the way my husband and I feel. And so I am all for conservation, and I think all of your ideas of, of trying to let people know what things actually cost is excellent and necessary, and I just I just don't know what everybody else's bill is, but I have seen ours. So,
1: it you know, Mary, I'm glad you I'm good. glad you mentioned that. One of the key things that I that I've tried to do in the book, and I, and I mentioned this in the introduction, is that I think sometimes uh, the language that we use when we discuss issues relating to resources such as air, water, land use, uh, get polarized un- un- unnecessarily through ter- through terminology that seems to throw up a red flag for one group or the other. And, um, uh, you know, I, as I write in the book, I think people who identify themselves as liberals, uh, you know, need to realize that we need to use our resources in the state to provide for the needs of a growing economy, a technologically advanced society, and so forth. And those who identify themselves as conservatives could could work to put the word conserve uh, back into what it means to be a conservative. And I think when I go around the state or when I talk to my students uh, about uh, pioneer-era values or depression-era values, people are readily in agreement with those. But Mm -hmm. suddenly, if you call it environmental, um, people seem to be opposed to it. So I think uh, Tom had said at the start of the program talking about the, the idea of stewardship, and I, I think it's really it's really important to think about the, the terminology we use, and, and I believe that when we talk to people around the state, we, we all sort of want the same thing. We want to have a strong economy. We want to have a healthy environment for our families. We want to have a, a healthy Environment that helps to support that economy and uh, absolutely so I'm really glad you said that
0: thanks Murray. you're uh, welcome appreciate the call uh interesting to get a, a perspective you know from from a specific water bill. but uh, I guess as you yes. responded uh overall you're talking overall figures uh water overall cheaper per per user than in many states here in Utah uh, yes I, I guess as charged, and, and uh, proponents of, of changing that would, would say we need to price water uh, more to reality.
1: Right, and, um, you know, if you talk to the water districts, especially in northern Utah, they'll say that one of the reasons that our water is less expensive is that uh, we're close to the source. So, In other words, you know, if, whatever, whether you live in Logan or Provo or Salt Lake, that uh, water doesn't have to travel hundreds of miles from the source, to, to our to our tap um, and that's true um, and furthermore the water that we have is is uh, very clean you know we're at the in effect the top of the watershed so it doesn't require tremendous amounts of filtration so that's one reason why our our water um, doesn't cost as much as it as it does in in, in other places um, in the country and I, I really think it's important for uh, I mean I personally but also when I, when I talk about this that to realize that um, you know the water districts, they're in, they're interested in, in conservation as well. Um, I think people at, around the state are interested in conservation and uh, and finding a solution that that works for everybody. I think this book is really an attempt to to help make clear what some of the issues are and to think about some solutions that maybe you know we don't we don't hear about every day.
0: We uh, have a call and an email. Let's go to our caller first, then we'll take a break and come back and respond to the email. By the way, uh, we uh, would love to get your response, your personal experience, what's happening in your household with regard to water and uh, your community. Uh, This book uh, takes a, a... broad range of water issues. It's it's kind of an overview. It's called uh, Desert Water, the Future of Utah's Water Resources. We're talking with the editor, uh, Weber State University English professor, Hal Krimel. Uh, let's go to Margaret Invernal next. Margaret, uh, glad you called. Welcome to the program.
4: Thank you. Oh, I wanted to um, talk about uh, the uh, evaporation that uh, goes on when the uh, sprinkling is done in the um, height of the day, or, or even once the sun's come up, I tried to do mine um, uh, before there was any um, sun up, and I, I don't know how much that saved, but you see a lot of sprinklers on the farms going all day, and in the heat of the day, there must be a lot of evaporation.
1: Yes, that's a, that's an important uh, comment. I'm, I'm, glad you, I'm glad you mentioned that. Uh, you know on the agricultural side to some degree that 's that's that 's a challenge because when when you when your water comes down the ditch let 's say your your window is you know ten to ten in the morning to noon you have to use that water then you can 't use it at another time because someone else is going to use the water then um but in terms of the residential uh use you 're absolutely right that there's a there's um that would be Probably the easiest thing that any homeowner could do is not to run their sprinkler during the day when the evaporation rates are so high. Um, and uh, Tom had asked earlier, you know what, what what are some other things that homeowners can do? Um, some of this may need you know some some help from the from the city and and people probably aren't going to want to hear this, but in other cities such as Los Angeles. Um, and uh, in Las Vegas, if you're running your sprinkler during the day, you'll get a ticket. And if you're running your sprinkler and the sprinkler and the water is running down the sidewalk or the street, you will get a ticket. Um, that that stops wasting water very quickly. Even though it's uh, many people um, uh, couldn't they do see that as an infringement about- on their on their personal right, but I think we have to think of water collectively as something that we all share and use in the same way we do our our air.
4: Yes, um but on the farming side of it, uh couldn't they do the um the the program of of when they get the water so that it's mostly at night and not during the day?
1: Well, the 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 issue there is, is that you might have let's say, you know, could be 20, 30 people on a, on a particular irrigation ditch. And so I there just isn't enough, enough time in a 24-hour period, say, for everyone uh, to, to be able to use their water without irrigating during the day. But again, if you, um, you know, perhaps with a, a different pricing structure in water, you might find some innovative ways to, uh, to deliver the water, maybe to, to irrigate differently and, and so forth.
4: Yeah, it seems there's an awful lot of the water, water must be evaporate
1: when you it, see it the is. Sprinklers going you know, on. Yeah. no question. On the the, day. That's, that's not just an issue um, with uh, irrigation water, but it's also an issue with, our, like in Lake Powell and Lake Mead there. Oh, yes, yes.
0: Yeah. You know, m-
1: lots and lots of water is lost to evaporation.
0: Thanks, Margaret. Right. Thank you. I appreciate Bye-bye. that. Good, Some good points there. We're going to take a brief break. When we come back <clears throat> more with how Krimmel, Desert Water is the name of the book. We're talking about Utah water issues. Very interesting comment up next from Steve by email talking about uh, Las Vegas um, and uh, juxtaposing that with situation in, in Utah. We'll uh, get to that email and uh, hopefully yours as well at access at gmail.com or your call at 1-800-826-1495 following the break.
2: Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members, and the Cache Valley Center for the Arts Ellen Eccles Theater presents the fairy tale ballet Beauty and the Beast. Performed by the State Street Ballet to the music of Tchaikovsky and choreographed by Robert Sund, October 29th and 30th. Ticket information available at CacheArts.org. Next time on Living on Earth, Tourists love to visit Morocco's picturesque, traditional tanneries, but the
0: tanners need a solution to their toxic wastewater.
2: Could it be that they could do something like uh, what Disney does, you know, have it look like it's old, but actually using modern technology in the background? And would the tourists still come and buy? I'm Steve Kerwood, and that's next time on Living on Earth from PRI. Wednesday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio.
0: Thanks for listening to Access Utah. We have another uh, five or six minutes left in the program. Uh, We're talking with Hal Kremmel, who is Weber State University English professor. He has edited an interesting new book, Desert Water, the Future of Utah's Water Resources. Uh, Everything from a possible return of Glen Canyon as Lake Powell uh, is is drawn down uh, to a new water ethic. Uh, political science professor Dan McCool is uh, outlining a new water ethic. Uh, Hal Krimmel's uh, own chapter talks about oil and gas development, effects on water there in the Uinta Basin, and uh, a broad range of issues. We'd love your response at 1-800-826-1495. We're on Twitter at Utah Public Radio, and you can email us. At UPRaccess at gmail.com. Here's what Steve has to say. Uh, Steve says, an acquaintance who is a hydrologist met re- quite recently with the director and chief hydrologist of the Southern Nevada, that is to say Las Vegas Water Authority. To my friend's astonishment, they express the firm belief that Las Vegas will have all the water it needs for the next 40 years. And he says they made a pretty convincing, though not ironclad case. Steve goes on to say, "How could a fast-growing city smack in the middle of the Mojave Desert seem to be more water secure than Northern Utah, melding snow cap, of course? But is Utah's population growing at the same clip or even faster than Nevada's?" Uh, those are some questions uh, of uh, from from Steve.
1: Those are terrific points. Um, I, I can't answer the question about Nevada. I think uh, prior to the recession, Nevada was growing at a really fast clip. I think with the recession. Um, that growth rate has slowed somewhat, but I'm, I'm sure it's going to pick up again in the future. Um, I think uh, Steve's two points there. You know, one is um, that uh, goes back to what we talked about at the top of the show that this uh, sort of scare tactics that we're running out of water, and if we don't do something drastic, we are you know you're going to turn on the tap and no water is going to come out. Um, the fact is, there's plenty of water for people. Remember that two percent figure? Only two percent of the water used in the state is used inside the home, so there's always going to be enough for us to drink, wash our clothes, and cook. Um, Nevada has um, they've, they've uh, two, sort of a two-pronged approach. As many of you may remember the uh, the pipeline that was proposed. They were going to tap aquifers in the Snake Valley, in out in the West Desert, West Central Utah. Um, which would have drawn down the water table, um, dried out the vegetation, put, put more dust into the air, which would have exacerbated the terrible air pollution problems we have here in the Wasatch Front and in the winter in particular, uh, but also in the summer. And uh, to Governor Herbert's credit, he, he didn't sign that agreement, and so um, uh, at least that's not happening right now, though I'm sure they're going to keep trying the, the Las Vegas, the, the water the water czar there, Patricia Mulroy, uh, sort of a famous figure, just recently uh, retired, um, but I know they're still going to try and pursue that, that Snake Valley project. But what Las Vegas has done is they have aggressively pursued conservation measures, and I alluded to a couple of those in terms of uh, getting a ticket. Any new residential development in Las Vegas, you cannot put in a lot. You just can't. They won't allow it. Um, Las Vegas is also uh, uh, the recycle water. So the water that you see in the fountains, say, on the strip, that's not nice, clean, fresh water from the Colorado River. That's recycled water, often called gray water. It's come out of uh, t- taps and showers and so forth after people have brushed their teeth. Uh, it's treated and then it's, uh, and it's, it's put into the fountains. Um, they also have Done wonders with um, purification systems, so that uh, and this grosses a lot of people out. But in fact, that water is often cleaner due to a, using a reverse osmosis water treatment process than, say, the water that you'd, you'd get from, say, the Colorado River, even treated. And um, so they're saving, uh, you know, huge amounts of water by the water that, say, uh, again, it, it sounds sort of gross, but was. In somebody's kitchen sink today is consumed by somebody else tomorrow. And uh, this is a, a process that uh, other municipalities around the world, particularly in, in a, a drought-stricken Australia, that they've adopted these, these, uh, these models of reusing water. So even if we didn't reuse water for culinary, we could certainly do it for our secondary, for, in other words, to put on people's lawns. So that's a, that's, a, that's a wonderful question and a, and a great point,
0: Steve. Uh, we just have a couple minutes left. Uh, here's a, uh, a comment from Denny and Gail in Cedar City. They say, I believe that every Utah State Extension office offers free yard watering monitor services. We used it two years ago and uh, reduced our water use by 30%. This is a great service and could make a huge difference statewide, they say
1: that's fantastic. I mean, what a, what a, what a great comment. Uh, who wouldn't want to reduce their water use by 30%? You're saving, you're saving 30% (laughs) uh, money that could be used for, for something else. So, um, I, you know, I'm sort of a middle of the road guy. I mean, I'm not totally opposed to infrastructure projects, but until, and personally until I feel that we've really exhausted every possibility for conservation, um, it, it, it doesn't seem to make sense to me to spend taxpayer dollars to the tune of, of, of 32 billion uh, for infrastructure here here in the state.
0: Uh, just uh, 30 seconds uh, uh, to to sum up. Um, I wonder what uh, what's the most important thing you would say about about this A l- l- breadth of issues here in in the book uh, at the end of the program here. What uh, what would you say?
1: Uh, number one, education. I think the more people can educate themselves about the water issues facing the state, the more likely they are to embrace some of the ideas that we're, that we're outlining in the book. Uh, two, I think people care about water in the state. They care about the natural resources, the things that make it such a great state to live in. And, um, and I think when they, when they think about what's important to them, they'll they'll come to many of the conclusions that we've come to in the book, that we really need to rethink the way that we we value water in the state, and and we really need to treat it like the precious resource that it is.
0: Uh, We uh, have been talking with Hal Krimmel. Desert Water is the book. Thank you so much.
1: Tom, thank you. It was a real pleasure, and thanks to all who called or emailed.
0: And much more to be said. We'll have many more programs, I'm sure, coming up on this, this issue. Thanks for listening to Access Utah.
2: Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members. And Culligan Water of Cache Valley, family owned and operated for more than 62 years, providing Culligan bottled water, salt delivery, or soft and conditioned water. Hey Culligan Man, service from the man in blue. Online at logan.culliganman.com
5: Welcome to Wild About Utah, a Utah Public Radio production featuring contributors who share a love of nature, preservation, and education. Hi, I'm Rue Mahoney from Stokes Nature Center. As the mountains begin to take on hues of scarlet golden russet, many Utahns might be looking eagerly toward the coming months when those slopes will be blanketed in white. The Utah ski industry nurtures a whopping annual income of about $800 million, It's no surprise, therefore, that the state claims to have the greatest snow on Earth. In fact, the state of Utah managed to make their slogan a federal trademark in 1995 after winning a lawsuit brought by the Ringling Brothers and Barnum & Bailey Circus Group, who felt the catchy marketing phrase might be confused with their slogan, The Greatest Show on Earth. The trademark must have worked, because Utah draws so many visitors to its slopes, it racks up about four million skier days annually. But disregard plenty of evidence that we do indeed draw a crowd and the statement is pretty subjective. So what's the science behind our legendary powder? The ideal condition skiers hope for is a deep, fluffy snow that creates the illusion of bottomless powder. And finding it is a bit like the Goldilocks story. Too wet and you bog down. Too dry and there's not enough body to create a floating sensation beneath the ski. If the terrain is too steep, the powder won't stick. And if it's not steep enough, you can't build sufficient momentum to glide over the top. To get to the bottom of why Utah's snow is just right, we actually have to look even further westward, toward the slow, warm waters of the North Pacific current. As water-laden clouds move inland, snow first falls over the Cascades in the north and the Sierra Nevadas further south, with an average moisture content of 12%. Even in areas like Washington's Mount Baker where annual snowfall comes in greater quantities than Utah, the moister maritime snow creates a heavy base that bogs down skis. By the time these winter storms cross the Great Basin and reach the skier's mecca of Alta and the Wasatch Range, the moisture content will have decreased to about 8.5%. And that seems to be the sweet spot. The moisture content of Utah's Intermountain snow is just enough that powder from our first storms settles into a soft but voluminous base. As winter progresses, fresh snow falls in a cold and mostly arid environment, forming very fine symmetrical crystals called dendrites. The microscopic structure of dendrites allows them to accumulate in well-ventilated, incompact drifts, much like the puffy down in your favorite pillow or ski jacket. And perfect powder isn't the only advantage Utah ski resorts have over their neighbors. Our mountainous topography, with its wealth of winding canyons, means we have an abundance of slopes well protected from strong winds, which could compact or carry away fresh snowfall. And while so many cold and overcast days might get you down, it also protects our top powder from radiation and air mass effect, which can create a crust along the surface. And that means our freshly fallen powder sticks around for longer. So consider that Utah offers 26,000 acres of mountain blanketed in more than 500 annual inches of perfect intermountain snow, and it's no wonder we enjoy five times the number of powder days as our neighbors. The greatest snow on earth starts sounding a lot less subjective and more like truth. In fact, you might just be tempted to make like Goldilocks and make yourself at home. For Wild About Utah and Stokes Nature Center, I'm Rue Mahoney. Wild About Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio. For transcripts and archived audio of Wild About Utah, go online to upr.org and click on the Wild About Utah link. Support for Wild About Utah on UPR is made possible in part by our listeners and the Southern Utah Wilderness Alliance. For more than 30 years, working to preserve the wilderness at the heart of the Colorado Plateau. More about protecting Utah's wilderness heritage at suwa.org.
2: KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KCEU Price, KUSUFM HD1 Logan.